This is Cecine Spa, a Star Trek. I'm Van Velding, and I'm very picky about my Star Trek. I'm Skilltow. I like things that are made from other things, and I'm pretty impressed with the Orville's first season. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty good. We're we're just starting out here. We're going to talk about it. Uh, the first one is called Old Wounds, which is immediately a Star Trek reference. It is the story of the series, an officer is recovering from a failed marriage. He finally gets his own ship, and it turns out that his ex-wife is the first officer. And they have to work together to protect this powerful new technology from falling into the hands of the Krill. This episode spends its first ten minutes uh, introducing itself in the series. And a lot of that they're drawing from the uh, old original series movies. There's the beautiful two whole minutes where they are leaving space dock with that very loving view of the ship as they go past. When they get the whole crew, all 120, 180, however many there are of them in the shot, for the captain to meet them for the first time, that's taken from the motion picture, I think. And the and when he gets the officers lined up by themselves, I think that is from Star Trek IV, the one with the whales. I can get yeah, all right. They, they they kind of reprise that in the beginning, yeah. I, I didn't catch a lot of that. The shot that stands out the most to me as being from previous Star Trek is the the overhead shot through the glass dome on top of the bridge as they're pulling out of space dock, which is straight straight from the original pilot of the original series, uh, where when Christopher Pike's the captain, because it's directly from it's that. It's a great call-out. It's, yeah. uh, it's a nice call-out. It's a nice call-out. And it, it establishes what the show is trying to do, which is to kind of be like Star Trek-ish. Except that it establishes more of the universe, I think, than Star Trek does. Does a fantastic job with that. And I think that goes to how the series is, or how this first season is planned. They have a lot of things that work in between episodes. By taking from the original series, by taking these shots that we really recognize, it establishes not just what it's trying to do, in those shots, but what it's trying to do as a series, what what the scope of the series is. Yeah, something as simple as putting the headquarters for the Union Fleet in New York at the Union Central Station changes the Union Fleet from being initially an exploratory organization like NASA into being possibly more of an outgrowth of New York's uh, public transit system, which is a very interesting change. But in that first 10 minutes, they set up a lot of stuff. Uh, the Union Fleet has 3,000 ships. There's the Orville's mid-level exploratory ship. And at the yeah, end yeah. of that, we see how big, exactly how big the Orville is relative to a Krill ship, and exactly how big the Krill ship is relative to a Redwood tree. That's something that you never, ever get in Star Trek, is any sense of absolute scale. Yeah, they, they, they don't hold things that you recognize up by them. It's kind of, it's by association in Star Trek. Guys seems like shuttlecraft. Shuttlecraft is next to ship, but because it's space, you still don't have a firm sense of scale as much as putting a redwood through a krill ship, which is very, um, very set. I'm not entirely certain how big the Union is. I think in Star Trek we get a little bit of a sense based on how many days or weeks it takes to get, but in this show we just get, what, 10 light years an hour as the ship's speed in one of the later episodes? Yeah, they do They do establish that, which, you know, warp speed is always the speed of... It's interesting that the show would bother to establish exactly how fast the ship is going. I mean, we know that in the first minute of the show, basically, that the ships are far apart, even though there's 3,000 of them. 
but the show isn't really about logistics or even the science. I mean, they make a point of using science that makes no sense here. What it, they do put front and center is the career issues and the relationships between people in the crew. As you hear Mercer and Grayson fight, one of the things they say is that Mercer is pursuing his career, uh, both their sakes. But later on in the series, we hear that they, the Union is a post-scarcity society. So what does that even mean? How can what he's doing be for both their sakes if the... You know, in, in majority rule, they establish they don't have currency in uh, New Dimensions, I think it is. They, they speak explicitly about people seeking higher status jobs for the status, I think. You know, for you to, to kind of calculate there with all of that. You know, there's some, there are some terms of the scope which are not complete. You know, we, we see in later episodes there's no currency. And yet in this episode, Mercer says that he's pursuing his career for both of them. So, you know, what then does that mean? The Orville is a really well-constructed show. Uh, unlike Star Trek, where they take things basically as they come, a lot of the uh, this first season seems to be planned out ahead of time to build a, a framework to build the episodes on. And most of that's done in the first ten minutes of this first episode. It, the very first minute's a very tight minute. We get uh, not only the... Mercer Grayson divorce, which carries us through not just this episode, but the whole season. But we also get the size of the Union. That's, or the size of the Union fleet, which is about 3,000 ships. There's a later episode, Priya, that tells us the speed of the ships are 10 light years an hour, which strikes me as crazy fast, but I don't actually know the speed of ships in, like, next generation Star Trek. We don't have a definite size of the Union. A later episode, I think Priya tells us that the their ships can go 10 light years an hour. But although they say that Union ships are far apart, that doesn't give us a super concrete idea of how big the Union is. And the show doesn't really care that much about the logistics or the science of the show. What they do put front and center, again, that very tight first minute of the episode, is uh, people's career issues and their relationship issues. And that, that's the important things to focus on. So, I mean, one of the things that they don't really talk about is, um, that they don't define well, is the sociology of the universe, which I don't think I've ever seen a society that has done that beyond the fact that women are sometimes scantily clad. But uh, we get in majority rule that they don't have currency or, or regular economic systems. And yet in, in this episode, the first one, Mercer says that he had his job and he focused on his career for himself and Grayson, his, his ex-wife. So what does he get from that? I know, is it um, New Dimensions, where they talk about people have jobs for status? What does that status get him and Grayson? It's, it's unsatisfying. We see at the end of this episode, Grayson uses whatever status she has to get Mercer this assignment. We see Mercer later on shielding some of his crew from fallout of their actions. And we see, what's his name, uh, Malloy. He's, what, stuck playing uh, World of Warcraft all day because he... What did he do? He screwed up with the shuttle. I think he shared off his shuttle door. Is that what he did? To impress a woman? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, he, he broke equipment major time. Um, and he only gets back into service because of Mercer. And I love how that relationship ties into the climax of the episode. Which also, we get to see the Krill, 
which are going to be the villains for this first season, probably for a good part of second season. And we get to see that they are yeah. uh, have strong family values, apparently. I mean, that seems factual. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're, they're very religious in a, a series that is fairly a-religious, kind of um, anxious about it, maybe, as we see later. We don't get a lot of detail about their religion. Uh, even later on, we just see that it's violent. <laughs> well, um, yeah, right. We One of the, the sole characterizations of the Krill, and we should probably talk about this in the Krill, is their religion, whereas no one on the Orville seems to have much religion. And it's, it's an interesting thing about the universe they, they establish. It would be amazing if Isaac is the only one with a religion. That would be great. I would love it if Isaac is the only one with religion. <laughs> um, so Isaac is like their super science science officer. I think we like Isaac. Um, but I would like Isaac more if you could call out some of the bullshit science in this show in the first episode. That would have been nice. If he could... If he was more <laughs> of a vehicle for the audience rather than a plot device for the writers. Just someone who's over in the corner shaking his head as we talk about redwood trees that grow from a time bubble or whatever. God, yeah. That's, that's, I understand that that is intentional. It's funny and that it shows us that the Orville isn't trying to be perfect with their science, but trees do not work that way. Once you, uh, once the tree grows to the edge of the bubble, it's going to stop growing fast. You're basically going to get a sphere of wood. Yeah, it, you're gonna get like a, a ten a ten mitochondria pile up there. It's just gonna like in the same thing with the lady whose face was caught in the time thing. Like all of her blood's gonna try to get out of there, and then no new blood is gonna get in, and then her face is gonna be like half blood, and then she's gonna have a stroke, and her neck's gonna explode. It's but none of us are gonna see it because it's just gonna be a sphere of blood. Eventually, yeah, it's 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 gonna settle. It's gonna settle, and then slowly drip out. That mm -hmm. whole. Uh, sequence. This is a pretty simple plot as Star Trek-like shows go. You basically have to extract yeah. something under fire. And the thing is, they extract the scientist and the device, but none of the research, none of the other people or the facility. We, it's, They're not in a good military situation yeah. there. It's, uh, it's the classic... You know, it takes an entire community and a civilization and a set of research and then, like, projects and engineering department to make these cool scientific prototypes that exist within a lab. And television is like, no, that's just man size, and Dr. Um, Dr. Smith over here can take care of it, and we'll just deal, seal them all and it'll be good. And it's like, that's not how science works. Um, so they kind of they Hollywood it up. Um, and it's unsatisfying. Like, and it's just... I feel like we know it's better than that. That it should be better than that. More nuanced. There should be more detail to it. So it isn't just one man made a magic time laser. Like there are notes and there are resources on the planet that are also a part of that. And you can't separate those and then just make another time. Sure, sure. And I know this is going to be the their go-to techno babble for the rest of the series. Or the rest of the season, at least. The other angle of the stupid tree aging, which is the physics of it. Which is like you really can't have enough nutrients and energy 
for something to grow because once you're inside the time field, suddenly the sunlight gets real dark because it's hitting you more slowly. It's not the only wacky physics. If you've seen Galactica 1980, you've seen uh, people jump like 40 feet in the air. I was not expecting to see Alara do it, even though she is from a heavy gravity world. Yeah, that, that was a pretty clever use of the physics. I like that. I mean, she's super strong in the size of a petite human female, but whatever. That's science fiction. I can hand wave that. Um, I like that she can jump real high. I like that. seems smart. It's nice to see the uh, so, um, them establish a number of different races, even if the crew and cast are going to be primarily human. Yeah, and the, the thing with Alara is that, like... Part of her race is that her people are strong, but, like, they aren't into violence, which is great, which is a great conflict. I kind of wish Alara was better at her job. Like, the firefight in the lab was a damn mess. Because they have to cross a wide open area, but there's cover in between. So what should be happening is that the the scientists from the, the officers from the Orville should be, like, providing cover fire and moving from cover and then doing cover fire and then moving up, right? Right. Um, kind of leapfrogging and like they don't do that at all and it's not even much more intricate or complicated than what they did do like you just need people shoot Mercer gets shot a little bit and then we're good and it's just so weird they could bungle that and then of course at the end they walk in open (laughs) cover through knee deep water under enemy fire and no one gets shot and that is bullshit uh, the krill are the worst. They probably could have just walked around. Yeah. I just. Are their helmets better or worse than stormtroopers? I mean, we know like it's cool that they set that up. They established that so that we know the krill. When we learn the krill are sensitive to light, it all works out. It all makes sense. But we assume worse because they can't shoot for shit. They're supposedly this big warrior race, but they are garbage shooting human-sized targets at a couple hundred yards. You know, when they're encumbered in open open ground, it's weird bad it's very bad it's also not a high priority for mcfarlane whose uh priority seems to be making a funny rather than uh, i don't know what word i'm looking for authentic uh star trek (laughs) i want to say autistically correct but i don't want to say that either i'm glad you said it. i'm glad you said that that way because i think there is this thing where Everybody looks at Star Trek and says, I want to fix what's not wrong here based on their own interpretation or their own misunderstanding of Star Trek. And they try to fix a bunch of things that aren't broken because it's more realistic or more aspirational or whatever. More marketable, granted. Um, And so you have a thing where everyone's trying to make Star Trek and they're trying to make it right. And I've been guilty of that. I feel like that's what Seth MacFarlane has been doing. He's trying to make the right version of Star Trek. Well, I think he is at Um, least trying to make a fun version of Star Trek. It's a nice contrast with that other Star Trek show airing right now, Discovery, where they're trying to go dark and gritty. It's nice to have one that more enlightened, more positive vision of the future people Mm. can aspire to. That's more concerned with leaving the viewer feeling good at the end rather than feeling dramatic. This has been Seth MacFarlane's career. He earliest episodes of Family Guy had Star Trek bits um, he made a fan film when he was a kid where he would wear the Star Trek uniform and like do little bits of stuff you wore that again on a um, Adult Swim clip I saw no doubt no doubt 
It's an okay film in terms of, you know, a teenager in, in a garage making uh, Star Trek-like stuff. He did a cameo on Voyager. No, not on Voyager, on Enterprise. He was a crewman on Enterprise, and Scott Bakula <laughs> yelled at him for being stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, you got Patrick Stewart to do into Family Guy and American Dad. I don't know if he started the Patrick Stewart will be in anything craze, or if he just let everybody know about it. I don't know. But um, it's great to see him do Avery Bullock and American Dad. And then, of course, uh, when he was when he was in the 2013 Oscars, he specifically put he hired William Shatner, put him in a Starfleet uniform, Starfleet issue uniform, and then put him on screen to do a bit because the dude just wants to make more Star Trek, and that that definitely shows in in this show. He loves it. Absolutely. I said, uh, I think I said at the beginning that this is a basically a remix of Star Trek, and. I 100% believe that's what McFarlane's trying to do. I think there's value in that, in making Star Trek, like, maybe not a fixed version, but one that's more marketable, more palatable, that people will actually watch. I mean, I can tell people that if they want to see Star Trek, that they could watch Futurama, Galaxy Quest, and that one episode of The Twilight Zone. But having this all in one series is pretty nice, too. Yeah, it's... I don't know much about Discovery. I know they say fucking it. And I don't think that has the big tent appeal that Star Trek should have. Uh, and I feel like for all of its flaws, the Orville does have that appeal. It does have, like, it works for families and they can see all this stuff. I think it's a little more authentic to the good. spirit of Star Trek. For sure. That, that's been my impression as well. So Chris, if you were to do a fixed episode of the Orville, what does that look like? I, mean, I wouldn't really need to fix it. Um, I've, I've done in role-playing games and fiction like fixed versions of Star Trek because everyone does it and we're all wrong when we do it. But if I were to like guess the, an episode of The Orville to Pitch, knowing kind of what I know from the first season, I would take a gimme, which is a musical episode. I don't know if it's like a brain parasite or like a magical energy field. I'm sorry, a science energy field or whatever. Uh, it's a musical where people sing everyone does singing stuff especially Seth MacFarlane because the dude loves singing god so you know what I'm gonna pitch but you say brain parasite can make you do that and mm -hmm. that's that how horrifying would it be for okay so my pitch is two episodes from the end of next generation season one and one from the beginning of season two I think would have made a nice trilogy if they'd all been on the same through line uh, skin of evil where Troy is trapped by some sort of evil black puddle conspiracy right. where Armus? yeah Armus. conspiracy where mm. the starfleet high command is infected by brain parasites and then the child where troy gives birth to a strange wonderful alien child that could have been a great trilogy but it would be even better if the brain parasites turned it into a musical somehow I mean, it would be in keeping with what orville mcfarland does yeah it's hard to pitch episodes since the se the season seems pretty well crafted like they set up things in one episode to follow up on in another you almost have to pitch like a season-long arc or structure um disagree well there's a few things then <laughs> all right uh, I, don't, I don't want to get into semantics yeah it sounds like an all right episode so uh, maybe maybe we will see that one day so uh, next week, we are going to talk about episode two, of course, Command Performance. We're going to talk about Alara's career a little bit and a few other things. So we do not have a sign-off. Goodbye.